Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everybody. Welcome it's been to a long break. Yeah, yeah, it's the longest we've ever taken because we've never taken a break before, mm. Mm. and we didn't plan to take this one. No, and it wasn't really a break because we kept on working. It was so uh, it was working for the entire time of it. But I went to a wedding in Sydney. Sydney is as I remembered it, and as Ellen did did too. She wasn't there, but I was walking around going like, this is why Ellen and I hate Sydney, because it sucks. I was there in spirit because Jess was messaging me being like, this sucks about Sydney. This sucks about Sydney. <laughs> oh, the wedding was amazing. This sucks about Sydney. Yeah. And I was well, like, even well, the people whose wedding I went to, shout out to the lovely newlyweds, Lauren and Carl, who are having the most amazing time in Italy. I got photos sent from Milan this morning and they're having a stunning time. Um, Damn, what a flex. But even there, even both of them were like, we don't really like Sydney. It just, it worked out the best for like where their family is and mm. proximity for the people that had to travel. So. See, nobody's there because they choose to be. No. And she's like, we weren't one of those people that like needed to have like a opera house, like photo for our wedding. And because we weren't anywhere near mm-hmm. the opera house. Um, but just like as confirmed, like it sucks. And I feel bad for the people that live there. Like everything's on a hill. It's so hard to like find anything. It was so stupid. Anyway, we're back and we're here for the second episode of our WA season. Um, To start off, Ellen has something she would like to say. Ellen, take over. Oh my God, you make it sound so dramatic. It's it's not. We just want to let everybody know we're going to be removing an episode and we're going to address the reasons why um, in a couple of weeks. But there's no dramas. No. This is not a crime junkie situation. Don't worry about it. It's fine. She'll be but right. we also didn't want to be like, we didn't want to do a sneaky delete. No. No. We'll reveal later. It's nothing too dramatic. It's fine. Um, we don't have any Patreon shout outs this month. So if you would like to be a part But we of- do have... Oh. We do have an individual shout out. Yes. Ellen I has a shout, shout out. out. I want to shout out to Zoe who is a mutual friend of Josh, who I went to uni with. Zoe apparently messaged Josh and was like, oh, my God, do you know this person? And that person was me. Um, So it's the first time anybody has acknowledged my existence (laughs) on this podcast. Jess is the one that gets recognized all the time, and I have never been. So I'm incredibly excited. (laughs) Thank you, Zoe. This is more exciting for me than it is for you. Hi, Zoe. Welcome to the family. We're so glad to have you. Um, If you would like to join the Patreon, you're more than welcome to. Um, We have different tiers of like the levels of donations that you can make. Um, We have Patreon-only content that you can listen to, which is really stunning. Um, And you can also request uh, cases for us to cover. Um, We've just been doing like what we want so far, so... If you have any suggestions? We've done two requests. We've done two requests, but um, if you have anything that you would like us to cover, send us a message on Patreon. Also, if you'd like to just get in contact with us um, regarding anything, regarding a case, or um, if you just want to have a chat and like let us know how great we are, um, you can send us an email at murderinthelandofoz at gmail.com. Um, you can also contact us on Facebook at Murder in the Land of Oz, and we're also on Instagram at Murder in the Land of Oz. Um, we've been getting a lot of love on uh, Instagram, which is really sweet. People reaching out and like posting about stuff and people posting about merch, which is really cool. Um, if you didn't know, we do have merch on TeePublic. Uh, the classic Mitlu sayings of what a bunch of noodles, botany solves crime. And um, I got to get me one of those Jim Jones communist monkeys 
the majority of the good ones are all Ellen Rose Sorensen. I have no recollection trademark. of saying any of them. It's like I black out every single time. <laughs> You're just that funny. Anyway. I'm just so funny. I can't even remember all my jokes. No, exactly. So it's my turn this week. Um, and I decided to go with one of the worst ones. <laughs> Rock and roll. Ah. <laughs> um, so obviously we're in Western Australia. Um, and this one was, uh, I think someone did message us about this particular case as well. Yes. Um, and then I didn't know about this case fully. I'd seen a movie that I'll have a chat about later in the episode, um, sort of uh, based around the, the the idea of this crime that we're going to talk about tonight. Um, but we're going to be talking about um, two really shitty people and one amazing woman who is a boss bitch who I would honestly give my right arm to meet because she is so incredible. Um, we're going to talk about um, David and Catherine Burney. But first off, I want to talk about an incredible woman. I'm so sorry. There is a sound coming from my computer that is coming through my earphones and it sounds like a dog chewing alfoil and it is so distracting, but I'm going to work through it and it's going to be fine because I'm talking about the badass bitch. But also only Jess can hear it. Only I can hear it, so therefore it doesn't exist. But anyway, um, I'm going to talk about the badass bitch, Kate Moyer. As quoted by Kate, it's pretty rare to survive serial killers. You don't really hear about it very often, and the people that do survive are generally incredible, very clever, and also insanely lucky. So, Kate so Moyer. Lucky. She left school. Uh, she was 17 in 1986. Uh, she worked 60 hours a week to pay her way. She worked as a retail worker, fill those fields doll in a boutique, and she was also a model. Like, this woman is stunning. Okay. So she was 18. She was living at home. She was a self-diagnosed handful, which I think is, you know, I can relate. Um, A big mood. A big mood. And on the 9th of November in 1986, Kate Moyer was abducted. So she had gone out with friends to the local pub, the Cottesloe pub, and then they moved on to the Claremont Hotel. We're in Perth, by the way. I've said this, but I'm just clarifying again. Uh, she uh, went out to see live some, with uh, with some friends to go and see some live live music. Um, her friends offered to drive her home, and she said, "Not nah, just drop me around the corner, and I'll walk the rest of the way." Um, she says herself, um, it, "This is in uh, oh, I, I can't even remember the name of the TV show that I got all of my not all of my, but I got a lot of information from. Uh, I think it's Murder Uncovered. Let me just check my." Yes, Murder Uncovered. So in the episode of Murder Uncovered that talks about Kate Moyer's story, um, she said herself that this particular evening she was very drunk um, and she was standing on the side of the road making her, making her way home and she saw a car coming. So she threw her hand up to like get a lift um, and in the car was a husband and a wife and back in 86 – um, with a few of the police people that were talking um, on this uh, episode of Murders, Murder, Murders Uncovered, um, you know, it, you would tell kids that if you ever got into trouble, look for a policeman. If not, look for a husband and a wife because they will look after you and they will take care of you. Mm-hmm. So Kate obviously felt safe getting into the car and they said, where do you live? She gave them her address. They said, get in, no worries. She gets into the car. They're driving along. It all seems fine. They get to Kate's house. They pull up outside. And then when Kate went to get out of the car, there actually wasn't a door handle to get out of the car. So then, Oh, no. Yeah, not cute. So then um, they were like, oh, reach through the window. Or no, no, they said something about the window handle. They're like, pull on the window handle and then you'll be able to get out. No go. Then she is grabbed, pulled between the two front driver's seats. The guy grabs a knife out of his boot and holds it to her throat. Um, And before this had happened, she'd heard the woman say to the man, I've got the munchies. They drove um, about five, six hundred metres down the road. Um, The woman got out of the car um, and got some cable ties out of the boot. Kate was told not to struggle because the ties would tighten. She was covered with a blanket and then she was forced to lie down in the back seat. 
She asked them point blank, are you going to rape me or are you going to kill me? And they responded, we'll only rape you if you're good. She was dragged from the car into a house and there was like huge like guard dogs, big German shepherds that were quite aggressive. Um, Once she got into the house, um, the cable ties were cut. She was forced to strip down to her underwear and her singlet. All of her clothes were then put into plastic bags and were labelled with Kate's name and she was forced to have a shower while the woman watched. And she remarks um, in um, Murders Uncovered how weird it was that they like, how weird she thought it was that they made her shower before they raped her. So yeah. they started asking Kate questions. Are you on the pill? Do you have a boyfriend? What's your full address? What's your full name? Like all these like sorts of different information. Then they put on a movie. They put on Rambo of all fucking things. And oh. Kate asked if she could change the movie. Um, she did her best to befriend them, get their trust, get them on side because – She's mm-hmm. fucking smart. She smoked cigarettes mm-hmm. with Trying them. To seem like she's cooperating. Exactly. Um, was offered a bong by the guy and she tried to get the guy as stoned as possible because she was really scared that she was going to get attacked. Um, mm-hmm. So they uh, had like a newspaper out and there was a picture of a woman that had been recently um, – that had been reported missing the day before and there was a big hullabaloo in the press about it and police were really worried about her. And they made a remark about the woman and were laughing about her. And these two people that had abducted Kate um, called themselves Margaret and John. So she knew mm-hmm. – she gathered in her head. Kate was like, there's a high chance that I'm not going to survive this – so in order for police to figure out that she was one of the girls when these people eventually got caught was that she planted evidence throughout the house so that, the wood, that it would lead police to figuring out that she was one of the victims. Um, so she hid a lipstick under a beanbag. She stashed cigarettes in a, the, um, the ceiling when um, Margaret and John, I say that with quotations, were out of the room. She stood on the back of a sofa and like reached up. I don't think Zane has one here, but it's like these compartments that like, get you into the, the – a manhole. Yeah. Yes, thank you. The manhole things, yeah. yeah. So she stashed some cigarettes in there. Um, uh, basically, That's she just smart. wanted to That's tell – smart shit. The, yeah, she just wanted to tell, like, the people that cared about her, especially her parents, that she hadn't run away from home and that she was, mm-hmm. you know, dead. Um, so John made Kate – dance for him to Romeo and Juliet Romeo and Juliet by the Dire Straits and tell like tell you now never listening to that fucking song ever again she cried as she danced and then she was dragged into a bedroom with a single bed and John began raping her Margaret was sitting this entire time that Kate was getting attacked and was taking notes in order to improve her sex life with John John taking told notes yeah I beg your pardon? I beg your fucking pardon. So John told Kate that she was very beautiful and sexy and then Kate says in this interview, she was like, I responded with like, rape isn't sexy. And she talks about this attack that like he he must have felt like he was making love to her because she was like, he was kissing me and like petting me and all this sort of shit, which is so fucked Ugh. up. So after oh, the gross. yeah, after this first attack was over, Kate was told to have a shower, and once again Margaret watched. Um, when Kate went back into the bedroom, there was four chains: so one for her right arm, one for her left arm, one from one for her left leg, one for her right. Um, oh Jesus! Ten minutes went by of her being restrained, and she started to cry because obviously, and she really mm. was getting distressed. She requested for a pen and paper to come in so she could write notes to her loved ones. Um, she wrote in total uh, um, uh, She wrote in total five notes and then she also began to scream for help. And, like, this is a residential street. Like, there are houses mm. everywhere. This so is it also, a neighbourhood in Perth. Yeah, so it also goes to show, like, what de- what these two people will, like, must have gotten up to that, like, the neighbours weren't interfering. Yeah, they didn't even react. Yeah. yeah. So then John comes into the room and he says, okay, sleeping plans have changed. So then she's brought in to sleep with him in the master bedroom. Um, But Margaret wasn't anywhere to be seen. Um, John rapes her again. 
and yeah once again making love like that feeling of like being made love to because he wasn't violent he was kissing Mm -hmm. petting everything and he must have felt like he was making love to me he got out a pair of handcuffs and cuffed Kate's ankle to his and gave her sleeping tablets so that she would sleep and stop crying she hid them she put them in her mouth she hid them underneath her tongue and then when he wasn't looking she Mm -hmm. stashed them underneath the mattress once again another oh god this woman is so brave right 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 oh my god okay because she thought if she went to sleep there was no way she was going to wake up so she like stayed she was up never gonna wake all up. night uh-huh. so kate in the morning was forced to ring her parents and tell them that she had gotten drunk and that she was staying at her friend sasha's house and kate thought she was like leaving her parents a clue because she her parents didn't know that she drank so she thought if I tell my parents that mm-hmm. I've been drinking and that I'm at Sasha's house they're gonna ring Sasha's house and be like after she'd hung up being like Kate I can't believe you're doing this like you're in trouble blah blah mm-hmm. blah her parents mm-hmm. didn't do that unfortunately they went back to sleep because they were probably like sure sounds like you're safe no worries fairly normal yeah mm. so then John leaves for work So Kate starts to evaluate her odds of actually getting out of this alive. And she starts to think, okay, with one of them gone, it's just her and me. I'd say there's about a Mm 50-50 chance of me being able to get out of this. Um, Mm -hmm. So when John left um, Margaret and Kate alone, um, Margaret once again starts laughing about this report about this missing woman in the um, paper. And she said to Kate, you'd think a big girl like that would be able to look after herself. And when Kate looked down at the photo, it was literally just a photo of a woman's face. And she was like, there is no way that no one would be able, like there is no way someone would think that that girl was a big girl unless they knew her. So then she realized that this missing girl was also caught by these people and she was like okay shit Mm -hmm. and she Mm -hmm. like evaluated from like all of their actions that they definitely had done this before and if they don't get caught they're going to do it again Mm -hmm. so Kate was like okay I have to win this woman's trust I have to get on her good side so they watched Rocky together and they start chatting she was even allowed outside with Margaret they Mm -hmm. um, sat outside and then they went back in and there was a knock at the front door Um, So Kate was pushed into the bedroom where she had been stashed, but in like the flurry of the moment and also because Margaret's guard was down, she didn't chain Kate back up. So Kate's just just in this bedroom going like, okay, what the fuck am I going to do? So she describes going from scared to terrified, just deciding in that moment that she had to do something to escape. So she Mm -hmm. was – she stood up and there was like these high bedroom windows and she was pushing on this locked bedroom window in order to like push, like to get out. So she's pushing and pushing and pushing as hard as she can. And she finally breaks the lock. She jumps out of the window. She lands on her head on the concrete. She gets up. Obviously she's fucked up from that as well. She gets Uh up, she runs across the street where there are all these houses. She's knocking on every door. No one answers. She runs down the road and she sees like a vacuum cleaner, like repair shop and like shop. And she sees a guy standing outside wearing a suit. And she's like, let me the fuck in. Mm -hmm. I have been raped and I need to, and you need to call the police. And she was like, if this crazy woman comes up and says that she's my mother and that we've had a fight, it's not true. Mm -hmm. I've been held captive. You need to call the police. Oh, my God. So, like, okay, number one, hiding the sleeping tablets. Genius. genius. Planting mm-hmm. all of that evidence. Fucking genius. genius. So uh-huh. strong to be able to force out, like, force over that um, that bedroom window. Literally landing on her head, getting up and running. She's literally jumped across fences, being chased by dogs, and she's like, no, oh fuck this. Fuck this. I'm getting out of this. There is no way I am not surviving this. Oh, my God. What an amazing woman. She's a fucking stunner. She's a fucking stunner. Anyway. Okay. So the police arrive at the vacuum store and they take her to um, Palmyra Police Station where they're going to take her statement. And the only woman that was on duty at Palmyra was 22-year-old Laura Hancock. And this fucking bitch, she is a legend. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, my God. Okay. So 22. Let's grasp this. Okay. Kate Moyer is 18. Laura Hancock, mm-hmm. 22. Not a lot of difference in age, right? No. Okay. This would be Laura Hancock's first ever statement that she took. 
Oh my god. Because her superiors thought that Kate's story was just ludicrous and they didn't believe her, so they wanted to stitch her up for a false report. Oh my what? Seriously? Yeah. yeah. That's fucked. So, from what Kate said to Laura, Kate believed that there had been other victims um, and that if she hadn't gotten away, that they would have killed her. And if they get away with this, they're going to do it again. Mm-hmm. Laura describes Kate's statement as factual and she gave a clear account of what had happened. She wasn't like breaking down, being like, this is what happened to me, blah, blah, blah. She was like, she was to the point and to the hour of mm-hmm. what happened. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Kate, um, Laura had been um, instructed to stitch up a fa- false report. So Kate told her about the whole ordeal being taken off the side of the road and the knife being pulled on her and the Rambo tape being in the VHS player about the sleeping tablets underneath the mattress. Several times Laura leaves the interview and Kate talks about how she thought every time Laura was leaving the interview that she was going away to cry. But what actually Laura was doing was going to her superiors and begging them to believe Kate. Take it seriously. Oh, God, that that is disgraceful. And the only reason that they finally started to believe her was because of Laura's persistence and also mm-hmm. because Kate had told Laura that she had been given the sleeping tablets and when she looked on the bottle because like these people had told like told Kate that their names were Margaret and John but she looked mm-hmm. on the bottle and there was the name David Burney oh all right so David Burney and then police also gathered with the woman being involved would be Catherine Burney. Uh-huh. So David and Catherine were bonded in childhood and they were both born into dysfunction, to put it lightly. Mm-hmm. David especially. Like David came from a really unkempt family. Um, there was They were subjects of a lot of rumours about promiscuity, drunkenness and even incest. Um, David's mother was known for her profanity and her coarse manner. Um, and one of the other interviews that I watched, this lady who grew up in the same area as David Burney, like described this like heinous woman that would sit on the bus and would just hurl abuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so David met Catherine um, and Catherine had also had, her name was Catherine Harrison, Um so she was uh, two years old when her mother had died, giving birth to her younger brother. Oh, and her oh dad Lord. couldn't cope. So she was sent away to live with her grandparents. Um, so Catherine mm-hmm. was 12 when she met David um, after moving back in with her dad. Um, and her dad was very disapproving of the relationship between Catherine and David. From 1969 to 1970, that is one year, they committed over 70 different crimes from safe breaking to possession of explosives to jailbreak. And when they were finally what? caught, Catherine was like, I know I shouldn't have gone with David, but there is nothing I wouldn't do for him. So they were referred to like in this very dramatic Channel 7 TV show as like Australia's Bonnie and Clyde, which I feel oh. like is a bit much. But anyway, um, so when they were both released from jail in their late teens, they both ended up splitting up. And finding different partners. So David Burney met this lady named Carrie in 1974. Um, the night after they met, they went out to the movies and David asked Carrie to marry him. And she said yes. And then a month later, they were married. Um, within a year, they had a daughter named Tanya. Um, David um, had like a ferocious sexual appetite, let me just say. So he strayed from the marriage a lot, even going as far as advertising for sex in the local paper, in quote, bored husband looking for fun times. He moved a 16-year-old babysitter into their house and Carrie was like, you know what, fuck this, and left him after 10 years. Go, Carrie. So Catherine Harrison found work as a housekeeper after she'd gotten out of prison and she married – the son of one of her bosses, John McLaughlin. They had six children together. The elder, and unfortunately, very tragic, their um, eldest son actually was run over right in front of Catherine's eyes. Sure, that was horrific. Um, in 1985, uh, Catherine decided to leave her husband because she had rekindled her romance with David Burney. Oh, no. So um, David was very interested in threesomes. He had presented the idea to his first wife, Carrie, and Carrie was like, "Mm, no, I don't think so. But Catherine Burney was like, yep, no worries. Let's whatever you want, David. That's fine. So with no luck of actually finding someone that wanted to join their little uh, band of 
dysfunction and grossness, um, surprisingly, um, they were like, no, nah, we're entitled to this threesome. We're going to get what we want. So we're just going to grab randoms off the street. Sounds like a great time. So they began hunting for uh, women, uh, primarily the hitchhikers. The logic in that is just not present. Right. Like the the, 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 the decision-making, the thought process, it's just not It's not. It's there. not there. They're idiots. Anyway, as I said before, if you were a kid in the 80s, you were told – if you're ever in trouble, if there's ever anything going wrong, find a policeman or find a couple. So you can imagine mm-hmm. with these young hitchhikers, if you see mm-hmm. like a like a man and a woman couple, you're probably like, okay, this is probably one of the safer situations that I can get into. So I'll get mm-hmm. into the car with these people. Because you're um, like, well, at least the woman's not going to do anything. Yeah, exactly. Like- exactly. Um, okay. So Kate's made her statement. Um, there's two police officers called Paul Ferguson and Vince Caddish who were running a task force on the disappearance of 21-year-old Denise Brown who'd gone missing two days before Kate um, two days before Kate had gone into the police station. Um, and it took several hours for them to get the statement that Kate had made um, because obviously with the police not believing her and wasting valuable time um, and they got the name that Kate had given to the police which was D. Burney. They got the details of David and Catherine. They got a warrant and went to the street um, where Kate had been found. So that's Morehouse Street in Willoughby in Perth. Um, they go to the house. No one's home. There's big fuck-off dogs. Um, so they uh, lay in wait um, and they wait outside. And then the woman woman comes home that they learn is Catherine Burney. Um, they told her immediately about the warrant and they go into the house. Catherine Burney is like fucked off her face on some drugs. They can tell she's just high. Um, they get into the house. They look. There's a fireplace, which is not great. Um, so, And there was some smoldering paper in the fireplace. So obviously they had been destroying evidence because there was mm-hmm. a period of time between Kate escaping and then the police, the police showing up. getting there. Um so Kate actually waited outside in the police car while Laura Hancock inspected the property and she remembered what Kate said about the Rambo tape being in the VHS player and the tablets under the mattress, tick, tick, tick. Everything was there as Kate had said. Mm-hmm. Um, police then show up at David Burney's work. He worked at a um, secondhand like car parts shop um, and the lady who was like the receptionist, like her dad owned the business, she talked about um, – like earlier that morning, David had said, the dogs have gotten out. I've just got to go home. He was pretty casual and then came back like literally within a half an hour. And then, yeah, the police then showing up the same day and taking she David away. Like, oh, maybe the yeah. dogs weren't out. But she was like, when the police was even taking him away, still acting really casual and like like just arrogant because he thought that they'd gotten away with it because obviously mm-hmm. they had been destroying evidence. Mm-hmm. Um. Obviously, with Kate's testimony, like, yes, there is a lot of, um, like, there was, like, proof in her statement of her actually being in Morehouse Street, but then it could easily have been argued that it was consensual sex and that she was Mm -hmm. there and there was just, like, a misunderstanding. So it was literally circumstantial evidence as to what Kate had said had happened to her. So the police were going to need a confession to get a conviction. Um, So David and Catherine were both brought to Fremantle Police Station and they were split up. So Laura Hancock was now in charge of guarding Catherine Burney and like the way she describes sitting with that woman um, and, you know, after hearing Kate's story and everything that happened to her, like having to like sit in the same like room as this woman was just like awful. Um, So Paul Ferguson and Vince Caddish were in the interrogation room with David Burney and they start like building a rapport with him, like hanging out as mates, like sharing cigarettes. And, you know, um, David was explaining that Kate Moyer like had been at the house and that it was for like a drug deal. Like she was buying some dope, like it was no, no worries. Um, He did say that him and Kate had had sex, but it was consensual, obviously. Um, So, however, though, Catherine Burney was in the other interrogation room and she said, no, never heard of someone called Kate. No one came to the house last night. So there was all this discrepancies in their stories because they're fucking idiots. They're so stupid. (sighs) All right. So then hours are passing. No one's saying anything. Like David's like, they're trying to get a confession out of David, like about what had happened with Kate. No, 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 no. Paul Ferguson's was like, Paul Ferguson then, um, like starts thinking about Denise Brown and he's like, I've got a really good feeling that 
these guys are involved in the disappearance of Denise, but they're still not getting anywhere. So mm-hmm. Vince then, um, you know, they, they'd made that deduction that they'd done this before and that there were other people out there that either had escaped just like Kate had or worse, that there were people, there were young women that had been like raped and tortured and murdered and that their bodies were um, out there. So he mm-hmm. just um, – so Vince Caddish literally just says this throwaway statement. He was like, let's go and get some shovels and let's go dig up some shallow graves. And David Burney cracks and he said, Vince, there's four. What? What? That bitch cracked like an egg. Yeah. I mean, after hours, but like I mean, cracked like an egg. But like cracked like an egg. Like mm. a really, really tough egg for four hours and then a real soft egg at the end there. Yeah, just because he was like literally I was running out of things to say about Denise Brown, was running mm-hmm. out of things to say with Kate Moyer. He's like, I just threw it out there and was just like, look, there's probably – he's like, let's just say this and he, maybe me saying this is going to make him think that I know something that I don't know. Mm-hmm. Clearly it did. Mm. All right. Okay. So their first victim uh, was Mary Nielsen. She was a university student uh, studying psychology who worked part-time at a deli. Uh, Mary met David Burney at the spare carts, uh, spare spare carts, spare car parts yard, um, where he worked, and he offered to sell her cheap tires from his house and gave um, her his phone number. So on the sixth of October, nineteen eighty six, she went to the Burney's house on Moore Street. She was forced inside. She was stripped. She was chained to the bed. David Burney then drove Mary's car across town, dumping it outside the police headquarters. Idiot. That's a bold move. Um. She was then uh, – she was raped and then she was driven to Glen Eagle National Park near the Albany Highway. Um, she was raped twice more by David Burney as Catherine Burney watched. She was strangled with a nylon cord and then stabbed and was buried in a shallow grave. A year later after her murder, she was awarded her degree in psychology. Oh. oh. Two weeks later, 15-year-old Susan, Susanna Candy was hitchhiking on the Sterling Highway Susanna was a standout student at the Hollywood Senior High School. Um, so she was hitchhiking on the Sterling Highway. So she was taken to Morehouse Street where she was forced to ring and write her parents telling, telling them that she was staying with friends. She wrote four letters, letters in total. She was raped multiple times before she was strangled by Catherine Burney. When Catherine Burney was asked about the murder of Susanna Candy, she said, because I wanted to see how strong I was within my inner self. I didn't feel a thing. It wasn't like I expected. I prepared to follow him to the end of the earth and do anything to see that his desires were satisfied. She was a female. Females hurt and destroy males. What the fuck? Sue was murdered at Morehouse Street and then David and Catherine drove Sue's body to Glen Eagle Forest. After Sue had been killed because of the letters that she had written to her parents, her parents were still receiving letters from her. Oh, Oh, that's so fucked up. Nine days after the murder of Sue Candy on the 1st of November 1986, Nolene Patterson was standing next to her car on the Canning Highway. She'd run out of petrol after finishing her work as a bar manager at Nedlands Golf Club. David and Catherine offered to drive her up to the service station. Catherine Burney then pulled out a knife on Nolene and they drove back to Morehouse Street. Nolene was threatened at knife point to ring a friend to say that she was going away for a few days. Nolene was then chained and held against her will for 72 hours. She tried to befriend David Burney while she was repeatedly raped and drugged. Catherine became jealous of David's growing attachment to Nolene and said it was either Nolene or her threatening to kill herself. David forced an overdose of sleeping, pi- sleeping pills down Nolene's throat and he strangled her while she slept. They took her body to Glen Eagle where Kathy supposedly took great pleasure in throwing sand in Nolene's face. Holy shit. Two days after the murder of Nolene. So can we just acknowledge the escalation of these I was just about psychos? to say, like, hold on. Is this all happening in, like, a fortnight? A month. A month. What the heck? What the heck? 21-year-old Denise Brown was waiting for a bus stop. I was waiting for a bus um, on the Sterling Highway after a night out with her girlfriends. Um, David and Catherine picked Denise up and drove her at Knife Point back to Morehouse Street. She was forced to ring friends to tell them that she was staying with other mates. Denise's boyfriend and flatmate were immediately um, suspicious of the phone calls. On the 9th of November, Detective Ferguson was called to see Denise's mother, who knew that if her daughter was going to stay anywhere that hadn't been discussed earlier, Denise would have rung her. Mm-hmm. Detective Ferguson also started noticing a pattern emerging of other reported women, other reported missing women making the same calls. 
The next afternoon after Denise was abducted, Catherine Burney, Catherine and David Burney drove Denise to Winneroo Pine Plantation where she was raped while the couple waited for night to fall. They dragged Denise from the car and David Burney raped Denise again and stabbed her in the neck. Convinced that he had killed Denise, they um, put her into the shallow grave and then she sat up. And then David Burney grabbed an axe and struck her in the head twice and then burying her. And the next day they chose Kate Moyer. Ultimately, their greatest mistake. Oh, my God. Oh, that... As Kate Moyer said, that confession was critical. I was in no state to go to court and defend myself. I was terrified of David Burney and she Mm -hmm. was pure evil. After Kate Kate had escaped under Catherine's nose, Catherine obviously had panicked and rung David at work. David left work for half an hour under the guise that the dogs had gotten out. In reality, he was instructing Catherine in disposing of the evidence. David's confession set Catherine off yelling weak bastard as she passed him in the corridor. Catherine was talking as if she and David what she and David had done was logical, picked the girls up to satisfy David, David and her needs, and afterwards they just couldn't let them go. David said that th- that three of the girls were at Glen Eagle and the other one was at Nangara Forest. David Burney led police to the body of Denise Brown. Then they then drove to Glen Eagle where the three other victims were buried. In sequence, David Burney led police to the bodies. They were neat, they were shallow, and unless you knew where you were going, you would never be able to find them. Delise, uh, David led the David led police to the graves of Mary Nielsen and Sue Candy, and Catherine Burney was the one who led police to Nolene Patterson, saying, "I'll show you where the bitch is buried." Oh my and God! Catherine Burney, because she woman. is the most evil woman I have ever encountered, spat on the grave of Nolene in front of the police. Mm-hmm. What the is ex- happening yeah. in that bitch's head? Yeah, I know. The exhumations occurred the next day with the pathologist. So at each of the scenes, um, a police officer was stationed with each of the girls' bodies, which I can't imagine what that must have been like for them. Horrific. At 5 a.m. the next morning, Kate, was, Kate Moyer was woken up by her father saying that police had found four bodies. Back at Fremantle Police Station, um... David Burney was taunting Laura Hancock, saying that you should have been the first girl I picked up. If I had gotten you, you would have killed me. You would have used the sword on the wall. The others wouldn't be dead, Laura. How do you feel about that? What the fuck? When they were sent to trial, David Burney pled guilty to four counts of murder and one count each of abduction and rape. When he asked why he had pled guilty, he gestured towards the victim's families and said, it's the least I could do. Oh. Kate Moyer maintains that she wished capital punishment was in state, in state, saying, I would have felt like I had received justice. Because of the escalation of crime of the crimes, if Kate Moyer hadn't have escaped and alerted police, they would have kept going and killed more mm-hmm. women at an alarming rate. Mm-hmm. On the 3rd of March 1987, David Burney was sentenced to four terms of life imprisonment after being found sane enough to stand trial. Catherine Burney was also sentenced to four terms of life imprisonment by the Supreme Court of Western Australia. Under law at the time, both were required to serve 20 years before being eligible for parole. There's also talk um, about David and Catherine being responsible um, for the disappearances of Cheryl Renwick in May 1986 and Barbara Weston in June 1986, and a suspicion at the disappearance of Lisa Marie Watt, who disappeared in 1980. She was last seen getting into a yellow panel van. Um, A call to the police after David Burney had been arrested was that David Burney actually did own a panel van and had worked in the area at the time of Lisa Marie's um, disappearance. David Burney's first wife, Carrie, accounted for his whereabouts during the abduction of Lisa Mott, um, him being with home with her all day, and she said there's no way he could have done that. She was like, definitely could be sus- like suspected for the other crimes, but he was home with me all day. Mm, um, interesting. Then um, October 1985, um, Audrey Schofield, she was a real estate agent, um, living in the same area as David and Catherine Burney and she would remember David Burney would um, wait for her to be alone in her office and then he would come in and start talking to her and was making her feel really uncomfortable and he was doing this day after day after day for a few weeks. So then Audrey asked her husband to sort of lay and wait for David um, and as soon as like David walked into the office and like saw her husband – um, he immediately bolted, mm-hmm. and that's when they started to move on to picking up hitchhikers. 
people who were alone and people who were vulnerable. Um, A year seems to be a bit bizarre between 1985 to then the crime starting in 1986 with Audrey Audrey in 1985 and then for the first Mm -hmm. murder of Mary Nielsen. So police don't really feel like they were dormant in this time. Um, So then... They have been linked. It hasn't been proven um, of the the disappearances of Cheryl Renwick, who was a young mother who in the months leading up to her disappearance was actually getting followed. um, She was actually getting followed uh, by a car with a couple inside. Um, Cheryl had actually moved houses because of the stalking incidences Mm -hmm. um, and because they were ringing her at home. And then one evening, um, Cheryl's daughter, Michelle, was home alone and a car had pulled up outside and Michelle actually had the front door open and this woman literally just got out of the car. She was wearing a scarf and she was wearing sunglasses and walked straight into the house. She looked around, she looked at Michelle and then she walked back out. And like that was like the hallmark of David and Catherine Burney, like taunting their victims. Um, That's fucked. Yeah. And then the 25th of May... Um, Cheryl Renwick went missing and her body has never been found. Her car was at the Perth Airport and then what was weird was that the footwells of the car were actually covered in sand and Cheryl's daughter, Michelle, was like, we never went to the beach, like Mm -hmm. ever. So I don't Mm -hmm. understand why there would be sand. In her car. In the car. And then police were like, it might not be from the beach. It could be like from the sandy ground of like Glen Eagle. Right. Um. And Michelle also talked about this story, like, after the arrest of David and Catherine Burney, they were dredging up, like, lakes and all that stuff to, like, find, Mm -hmm. like, items. Um, And she described of, like, walking into the police station and there being, like, a table with, like, a mountain-high, like, pile of clothes. And they actually found a top that belonged to her that her mother used to borrow. So, once again, not been proven. Um Barbara Weston, who also disappeared, she was a 38-year-old mother of two. Um, she was visiting a pub on the 27th of June, 1986. Um, Cheryl Renwick, Barbara Weston, Mary Nielsen and Denise Brown were all public knowledge. So with so many missing women um, in such a short amount of time, like the media were like quick to note that this mm-hmm. was the work of a serial killer. Mm-hmm. And then in 1991, so... Um, obviously, like David and Catherine were sentenced in 1987. So, 1991, four years later, they um, police actually found the body of Barbara Weston, and her jewelry had been uh, placed next to her body, which was also another hallmark of David Burney. Um, so, um, Vince Caddish, the one of the arresting officers, the got permission to take David Burney out of prison, actually to the burial site where they had found Barbara Weston, but David gave no response. Um, I think he said like. So what am I supposed to say? Right. He was visited in prison and um, was asked if there were other victims out there. And um, there was a gentleman that had started having a friend, not a friendship, but went in and was talking to David Burney um, and asked basically were there other victims. And apparently David Burney nodded. Um, in exchange for the names of the other victims, he requested a conjugal visit with Catherine, um, which was denied. No shit, it was denied. Are you kidding? No shit, right? Um, and then on October um, October 7th, 2005, at 4.30 a.m., David Burney was found dead in his cell at the Casarina prison. He was 54. An inquest found that he had hanged himself from an air vent um, using a length of cord. Um, various factors led to his suicide. A failure to provide him with antidepressants had exacerbated his depression. His computer had been confiscated and he was suspected of sexually assaulting another prisoner. He was described by a former prison officer as a model prisoner. Yup. As if. He apparently looked after injured animals. Um, Catherine was not allowed to attend his funeral. Good. Um, Catherine Burney was imprisoned in Bandy Up Women's Prison. Uh, Since being incarcerated, she has worked as a prison librarian and also appeared in a prison production of Nonsense. In 2007, her parole application was rejected and then the Attorney General of Western Australia, Jim McGinty, said that her release was unlikely while he remained in office. Her case was to be reviewed again in January 2010. However, on 14th of March 2009, a new Western Australian Attorney General, Christopher Porter, uh, following requests from the victim's family, determined she would stay in jail for life. The decision makes her the third Australian woman after Catherine Knight and Patricia Bryars to have her papers marked never to be released. Her appeal of this decision was turned down in March 2010 by Porter. However, her case may be up for review again in 2019. Her fourth bid for parole was declined in 2016. 
Um, in 2016, the Bernie's final victim, badass bitch Kate Moyer, began to campaign to end Western Australian laws that automatically put put convicts up for parole every three years. Mm. Kate has stated Bernie has never even applied for parole. Um, no, but that oh David never applied for parole. Yeah. Um, in 2017, um. Catherine Burney's younger son, Peter, called for her execution. He has stated that his association with Burney has resulted in his being assaulted and he supports Kate Moyer's campaign. Amen. I'm with Kate. Mm. Okay. I end this part of the episode saying that Kate Moyer is an incredible person and watching her Mm -hmm. talk about this, she has obviously gone through years of therapy and years of um, dealing with what happened to her and I think her integrity and her strength – in all of this is remarkable. So the next thing I'm going to talk about, I'm sorry I've just like pelted through this episode, but I have never wanted to not talk about anything more than these two people. I'm so upset that I've picked it, but I picked it and I'm almost done. Look, we make mistakes quite frequently. We make mistakes. <clears throat> um, so there's this movie that came out in 2016 that a lot of people were talking about. Um, it's called Hounds of Love. Um, and it was written and directed by Paul Young, um, starring Emma Booth, Stephen Curry, and um, Ashley Young- Ashley Cummings. Um, so basically, the story of it is this young girl called Vicky. Um, she's a teenager. Um, she was struggling with her parents' uh, recent separation. Um, she was spending the weekend at her mum's house um, after an argument between her, like her and her mum. Vicky snuck out to attend a party and is lured um, into a car of like a seemingly trustworthy couple called John and Evelyn White. Um, John and Evelyn, uh, like Vicky really like realizes that she's being held captive um, and she's forced into this like dark world of violence and domination Um, with no way of escape and her murder like imminent. She realizes that she has to like drive a wedge between John and Evelyn in order to survive. Um, John has like quite a manipulative hold over Evelyn um, and it's far beyond like Vicky's comprehension. Um, And so from what I'm telling you, it obviously sounds similar to the story. I mean, the movie's set in Perth. Similar but more like jazzified. Yeah, exactly. After – because like I'd seen the movie years ago not realising that that it was based – I didn't know the story of um, David and Catherine Burney or Kate Moyer. Um, and then I did all this research and watched all the documentaries and interviews with Kate. Um, and then I watched the movie and I was like, hmm, I don't n- – because uh, Catherine Burney was the one that was like – she was the manipulator in this whole scene. Like mm-hmm. this, like she was the puppeteer that caused all of this to happen because she was trying to fill David's needs. So when I was watching the movie, I was kind of like, Ugh. Like, Cause, sure. Because in the movie they make it – like she, like the Catherine Burney figure, like lets the girl go or something, right? Yeah, at the end, yeah. Right. And that she kills the guy. Right. Sorry. Spoilers. Um. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> but the thing is, like, Ben Young, like, talked about, like, the making of the film and he said that he studied nine different sets of couples that killed, um, including the Burneys. But the thing is, like, the movie's set in Perth. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you're going to think – it's just based on them. It's just based on them, which it wasn't. But Kate Moyer was obviously not happy um, with the film um, and suggested that uh, Young, like Ben Young, use his, use his, would use his own imagination. And she mm-hmm. felt um, a bit taken advantage of and confused. And why were we giving these people oxygen, like, and putting them on film? And not that it was a very romantic film, but, you know, there's giving them air. Yeah. Giving them attention that they probably didn't. Sort of like what we're doing now, but I'm more interested in talking about badass bitch Kate Moyer than I am about talking about David and Catherine But also thinking about the – talking and, you know, addressing the facts of the cases they happened versus, like, glamorizing it, even if if you're not, like, justifying their behavior, but being like, ooh, isn't this this interesting? But I'm actually just going to make the story even better and even more fucked up and even all messed up. Like, nah, it's fine as it is. Like, it's it's messed up enough. You don't need to gild the lily. Yeah. So, yeah. Kate wasn't very happy, which I think is understandable. And I could imagine, like, the other, um, like, Denise, um, Denise Brown's family and Susan Candy's family and Nolene Patterson's family and Mary Nielsen's family also not being very stoked about this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So Ben Young, who screened the film at um, the Venice Days section of the Cannes Festival, um, the Cannes Festival, I should say, not the Cannes, Bogan, um, <laughs> said that the comparisons were inevitable, but the film wasn't being marketed as true crime. Um, due to the premise, it's inevitable. Some people would draw the same comparisons um, to David and Catherine Burney because it was set in Western Australia. Um, but that he thought with how they handled the material and people outside of WA, you know, not maybe not knowing about David and Catherine Burney, like it wasn't about them. Um, so uh, Ben Young was supposedly drawn to write the film after reading a true crime book about women that kill, which I do think is interesting because, um, I mean, look, the, the majority of the killers that we know about are men um, mm-hmm. and the uh, – what I've heard people say to me is um, maybe there is a lot more female serial killers. It's just that they don't get caught. Mm-hmm. They're um, not suspected. Yeah. So, yeah, Ben Young then um, says, like, the references to the couple are nothing but speculation and that his film was more about um, examining the issues of codependence, control, and domestic violence. So, like, yeah. Like – Cool. That's I don't your know. Like, I feel like if you're gonna do that, then don't don't set the film in Perth, where two of the most mm. infamous couple serial killers are based, and also the looks of um, Emma Booth and Stephen Curry in the film who play um, John and Evelyn. It's very similar to David and Catherine Burney. Yeah. Like I Emma think, Booth looks like her. I think you know any if you're gonna copy something, you should. <laughs> try a little harder with your explanation like yeah i just feel like set it in any other city then at like a bare yeah. minimum at a, a bare, minimum. bare minimum and then he would have known it's not like he can plead oh ignorance. of course he would have if he was from perth like there was no there would be no way of There'd not no knowing way he this story yeah exactly I mean, and like to be honest it wasn't that long ago like 86 no. like so yeah i never ever ever want to think about David and Catherine Burney ever again because Kate Moy is right. They don't need they don't need the air. They no. don't need the space. And um, they don't need to be glorified in any way. No, definitely not. There is nothing there is nothing to be glorified in this story except the bravery of Kate Moyer and Laura Hancock actually. And also I, Yeah. And also the four women that didn't survive. They were brave. Exactly. Too. They like Mary Nielsen, Susanna Candy Denise Brown, Nolene Patterson, like simple everyday women going about their lives, just doing mm-hmm. something that everybody else was doing mm-hmm. and got caught up in this. Exactly. They were I, I cannot fathom because Kate Moyer um, actually knew Susanna Candy. She was a couple of years um, younger than her in oh high school. And oh Susanna's father was actually a very prominent ophthalmologist in – Perth and was mm-hmm. her father's eye doctor. Oh my god, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Kate Moyer. I've never heard anything like it. I think it's as- astonishing. I also mm-hmm. think Laura Hancock. Thank God thank she god. was there that day at Palmyra. Look, women like, got to stick together, man. And it's just lovely. Like they hadn't seen each other for thirty years, and then they met up doing this interview. Oh, and it was just oh, so sweet. That's well, fantastic. not sweet because they were talking about, but just like the affection that these yeah. two have for each other. Because like Laura, you know, 30 years later was still like so grateful that Kate was safe mm-hmm. and, you know, just – and they had this like reciprocal like just wanting each other to be like happy and safe and comfortable, which I mm-hmm. thought was really sweet. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. So, yeah. Well, that's awful and I'm worse for having heard this story. Thanks, Jess. Yeah. Yeah, I've been sitting with this shit for so long. I know. Um, Jess has texted me so many times being like, why did I choose this? Why did I do this? And I'm like, I don't know why we do this to ourselves. We're just we're just really just digging that depression hole deeper and deeper every fortnight. Because I'm trying to explain to people that have like listened to this and they're like, why do you do this if this makes you so upset? And it's because I want to tell the stories like Kate Moyer and I yeah. want to talk about Mary Nielsen and I want to talk about Susanna Candy and Denise Brown and Nolene Patterson because I would rather know their names than I would rather know the two like the two people that killed them. Yeah, exactly. It is I agree, so 100%. important to tell these stories mm-hmm. because 
I don't want this to happen to any more people. And it is fucked up that in the last two weeks, seven women have been taken by violence in this country. It is a fucking epidemic and mm-hmm. no one is doing anything about it. And I'm mad. Mm-hmm. I'm really, really mad. Because if men were dying at the rate that women are at the moment, fuck. Yeah. But no, it's all fine. It's, it's fine. Like lockout laws. It'll be great. No. This is not good enough anymore. This is not good enough anymore. It's not good enough and it's never been good enough. And the more we talk about it, the more people can't run from the truth, I think. Exactly. And I also want to say, I've probably all of our true crime friends out there that are listening. If you haven't watched Unbelievable on Netflix, I would 100% recommend it because stories like Kate Moyers will make more sense because of the amount of people that go in and report either about like that go in and report rapes mm-hmm. and how they're treated is disgusting. It is. Because just like Kate Moyer, who was going to be stitched up for a false report, like this story of Unbelievable is a true story. And this woman who was raped and was literally, like for the lack of a better word, tricked into thinking that she had made this all up. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine if Laura Hancock wasn't in there that mm-hmm. day? To, what to would have happened? Her and look out for her, exactly. Exactly. How many more women would have been raped, abducted, and murdered? Yeah, I think the big message from this episode is believe women. Believe women. I don't see what the point is of someone running to a vacuum cleaner store saying, "I've been raped. I've been attacked. I need help." Like, and some being like, hmm, but maybe she's lying. It's but like, maybe she's but, lying about it, though. Yeah. What no. the fuck would that do? Anyway. <laughs> anyway, believe women. <laughs> I'm mad. I'm mad about a lot of shit at the moment, but I'm really mad about this. Mm. You'd eat that jelly snake with righteous anger, Jess. Oh, I'm so angry. I agree. Anyway. Yay, it's done. I never have to think about it ever again. Yay. Another your next. Do you have your next, next case? I do have. Well, I don't know if my next case might be our Halloween episode. <gasps> Halloween. Spooky, spooky skeletons. It's the 6th of October. Two weeks. Maybe it will be Halloween. Maybe it'll be normal. Not too sure, but there will be a spooky Halloween episode. There'll be a spook and then there'll be a regular, just heart-wrenching, horrific crime to make your life a little bit worse. Yeah. You're welcome. You're very welcome. Um, once again, if you would like to get in contact with us, please send us an email at murderinthelandofoz at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Instagram at murderinthelandofoz. Uh, we're on Facebook. Um, we'd like to hear from you guys. We'd like to know if you're enjoying the content. Please make sure you rate and review. Um, if you're listening on Spotify, there's also Podchaser, which we've talked about. You can sign up on there. It's like social media for podcasts. You can review each episode individually. So if you really particularly like this episode or you really like Ellen's coverage on Ivan Malat or you really like my Carly Ryan episode, like you can get on there and you can leave personalized reviews to each episode. So we would really appreciate that. Um, Patreon, sign up, donate money, help us pay for resources. That would be great. Um, yeah. I miss you, Ellen. I miss you too. <laughs> it was it was Also everybody, break, Ellen got we my on the phone almost every day. Yeah. We have really long phone conversations now. We have really long phone conversations. We have really really long phone conversations and sometimes we have 2 hour long phone conversations twice a day. <laughs> That's okay. We're not That's dependent fine. on each other. I don't know what you're talking about. I the, as soon as something happens to me, I'm like, I have to call Jess. <laughs> as soon as like, as soon as like, I get overcharged for an avocado at Woolworths, I'm like, you know, you know who needs to know about this, Jess, and you know when Jess she needs does. to know about it, right, fucking now. <laughs> yeah, we have problems. Literally, if I'm having like a conversation with somebody on Instagram, I'm like, I need to tell Ellen about this like right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not nothing happens without the other knowing about it. No. All right, well, I'm going to go home. I have a day off tomorrow. Do you have a day off tomorrow? Is it public holiday in Tasmania tomorrow? tomorrow? No, it's not a public holiday in Tasmania tomorrow. Oh, well, we have a public holiday tomorrow. What public holiday is it? It's the Queen's birthday? Yeah. Good for her. This is excellent podcast content. All right, we'll leave you alone. Get on with the rest of your day. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Hope your bus ride was good. That's fine Hope you enjoyed washing your dishes or taking out your laundry. (laughs) Alrighty, guys. 
see ya. Bye. Bye. Let's talk about X, baby. Ah, crappy relationships, the bane of our collective existence. But what do we learn from our mistakes? I'm relationship columnist Liz Bess. And I'm funny guy Tom Harris. Ghosts of Boyfriends Past will chat to guests about love gone wrong and take you on a journey through the funny, tragic, horrifying... And sometimes just plain bonkers stories about that crazy little thing called love. It's like a group therapy session. With two people completely unqualified to be leading it. New episodes drop fortnightly on Thursday, so join in to hear tales of heartbreak and woe and hopefully wind up a little wiser or drunker for it. That's Not Kind of Productions podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.